Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 4. So uh, if you guys want to join us uh, in the Bible, it's also page 978 in the Pew Bible. (laughs) All right. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impunity and covetousness must not be even named among you, as it is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I really don't like these masks that go behind your ear but I ran out of the tie once. My ears are so irritated. I'm irritated. (laughs) But we're going to get over it. Starting with prayer, let's pray. Lord, um, we enter into this letter uh, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, inspired by you, and um, tough to hear uh, these imperatives that we're getting into, but so important to be reminded of who you are, what you did for us uh, in chapters one through four. And so please help us to keep that context in mind. And for those who are visiting um, or who are listening in online, who are are just jumping into where we are right now, uh, to know in their minds that this is addressed to the church, this is addressed to those in Christ, so that they aren't to feel condemned in judgment uh, as we go through this letter that was written uh, to those in Christ in Ephesus, as well as to those in Christ today. And so I just ask that you would come through, that um, that as you're using me to speak your word, that it isn't something that is casting that judgment or condemnation towards others in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a reminder that we're not reading folklore or mythology um, legend or anything of, of that nature. What, what, what we're reading here is an actual letter written by a historical figure in Paul, written to an historical people in the Ephesian church, namely the Ephesian Christians. And you can read more about this historical context if you want to read what Luke wrote in Acts chapter 19 through 20, or even if you just read through church history, which informs us that Ephesus had this very intimidating atmosphere against Christians and the church. And I'm sure you've heard people say, you know, if If only we could be like the first century church, everything would be perfect, everything would be great. No, they, like every other church, had problems, and actually they might have even had more because that's why we have all these letters written, is because to address how messed up things were. And like every other church, we face challenges, we face difficulties, no one's exempt from those things. And Ephesus was an especially hostile place toward Christians. It was a metropolis enamored with the occult, a city that was fully engaged with superstition, and being one of the largest port cities in the entire world at the time, like many other port cities that you would visit even today, sexual immorality is rampant, it's encouraged. And so it's important to have this historical background in mind since Paul is writing to these Ephesian Christians to live in a completely different way. 
And what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church is not any different in what is being written to us. We face similar challenges today. You know, it's 2,000 years later, different people, but same sin. 2,000 years later, different Christians, same sinful world. 2,000 years ago, the Ephesian Christians who were in Christ lived in Ephesus, just like those of us who are in Christ live in the Bay Area. And those in Christ are called to live radically different from those outside of Christ. Why? Because that's exactly who we are. We are different. We live radically different because we are radically different. We are to walk differently. Look at Ephesians 4 and 5 in in where we see this verb walk. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. Verse 8, walk as children of the light. Verses 15 and 16, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Why are we to walk differently? Because we are different. And it ultimately shows Christ through us to a world that is so desperately needing Christ even though they don't realize it. And so we get to our verses today, this morning, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It reads, Therefore be imitators of God. Imitators. We are to imitate God. We are to impersonate God, to copy God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. For people to see similarities, for them to see a likeness between you and God. You see, there are these recognizable traits in families that when you look at somebody, you recognize that that's somebody's child because they look like them. And so you look at physical traits. You can even look at personalities, how somebody sits, how somebody walks, how they, they deal with their hair or their temperaments or their attitudes, their actions, their words. There's, there's these similarities. Will people see that God is our Father? Will they see the similarities? Is there proof that we are God's children and that we bear the family traits of God in us. We know that Paul is writing to people in Christ, people who are in the family of God. He's not writing to people outside of Christ. So if I were to write a letter to my kids, it's addressed to my kids. And so if somebody else reads it and they read what it is, I'm not writing to them. It's not your business. This is is in the family. So therefore, Paul is not writing a letter to just all the Ephesians. He's not writing a letter to everybody out there. He's writing to specific people. He's writing to those in Christ. It's a letter addressed to the family. And so if someone is this well-intentioned person who's desiring to live this upstanding moral life independent of Jesus Christ, Paul didn't write this letter to them. 
That's not for them. This is not for them. He didn't write this to people outside of Christ. And it's, it's not to encourage people outside of Christ. He's not writing to the people who just want religion in their life or to people who just want to be encouraged about kindness or goodness or peace or justice or, or some other good things that good people agree upon. That's just universalism, and that's indeed not what Christ is definitely for. He is not for universalism. Just look at John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way. Not a way, the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Not a. It's not another option. It's the. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so this letter is for those in Christ. And it's easy for people to admit that they're imperfect and that they're broken. I think most people will do that. But consequently, it's easy to listen for some encouragement and just to be lifted up and told to do some good in the world. And that's why you come listen to a sermon or a message or something like that. But those types of messages fall so short of who we really are and what we really need. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it reads... And you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. It's more than just being imperfect. It's more than just being broken. And it's more important than just doing more good. You and I were dead to our sins. Dead. Now how does someone overcome death? You and I can't. We can't like, you know, give, give ourselves CPR once we're dead. You can't do that. And so Paul wrote, be imitators of God. And it's really important to realize the chapters before this, chapters 1 through 4, that we were dead in chapter 2, verse 1. Otherwise, you're going to miss the whole point of the rest of this entire letter into chapters 5 and 6. Why is it so important to realize these things? What's so important to realize from chapter 1? That in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's verses 5 and 6. That's really important to know before we get into chapters 5 and 6. Adopted as God's children through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to be adopted by God. Skip down to verse 13 in chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we're, we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's really important to understand in chapter 1 before you get any further. And this letter is addressed to those who indeed did that in chapter 1, who heard the truth, who believed in Christ, who were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And with those three things that happened, then you are a child of God through Christ, and you are no longer dead, but you also do not have the right to disobey God's commands any longer. You're being conformed by the Holy Spirit who sealed you and becoming more and more like Christ, which we call sanctification. Not less and less like Christ, but more like Christ to imitate God. And we willfully obey God's commands. Why? Continuing on in verse 1. As beloved children. This is why. Because you and I are His beloved children. 
I would not write a letter to somebody that is not my child with something this serious. Because they're not my kid. But if they are, I can be more stern. I can be more frank. I can be more upfront with how things are. Those in Christ are God's beloved children, and not everyone is in Christ. Therefore, not everyone is a child of God. Not because God doesn't want to adopt them. It's that they haven't been adopted by God because Christ has been rejected as the only Savior for people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Those people have not yet been adopted through Jesus Christ because all of those three things mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1 have not happened to that person. They have not heard the truth, the gospel of their, their salvation. They have not believed in him, Jesus Christ, and they have not been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And all three things have to happen in order to be adopted in Christ, when you are adopted, you are his beloved child. And for those of you who have healthy relationships with your children, you love your child like no one else, like nothing else. You will do almost anything for that child. And so we look at God, God's love who is for his beloved children who has an infinitely greater love than any parent with their child. Now, it doesn't mean that we are not going to suffer fear or pain. It doesn't mean that the tears we shed are forgotten. But the tears that we shed, they are meaningful. They are essential. And you read Lamentations and you get an idea of this. Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse 17. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and it is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah is the one credited for writing Lamentations, and obviously it's showing that we're not promised a painless existence. We are promised an everlasting existence in his presence with God. Take a look at Psalm chapter 91, starting in verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. We are God's beloved children. And before we get any further into these next two chapters, you have to have a good grasp on chapters 1 through 4. You have to have a solid grasp 
of being an imitator of God, of putting off your old self, of putting on the new self, and that you are beloved. You are a beloved child of God before you get to verse 2 and all the imperatives that come after it. All those commands written in chapter 5, chapter 6, you have to understand this first. So hopefully you have it, and now we can move on. Verse 2. And walk in love. A person in Christ has a very different definition of this phrase, walk in love, than somebody outside of Christ. When we, as those in Christ, walk in love, we have Ephesians chapter 4 in mind. Right? The, all those walking phrases. Verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So in these Ephesians, they're walking in this grand library or this grand theater into the steam rooms or even to their church or through the port. They walked in love as imitators of God, knowing that they were God's beloved children. They watched what God would do, and they imitated that. And that's exactly what Jesus did on earth. He did this better than anyone else ever did and ever will do, is walking as God on earth. And that's who we are to imitate when we walk through our communities, just as Jesus walked. We don't define what walk in love means for me. And you hear that all the time. Well, this means this to me. Now, you can do that for yourself, but you can't do that in terms of just a truth of what it actually means. The scriptures define for those in Christ what walk in love is, and the scriptures will have a lot more to say about walk in love since we're instructed in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That those in Christ resemble Jesus Christ. And there are ways to imitate the way he communicates, his actions, his life, that glorifies and honors God, that we are His beloved children. And, he, and Paul here is not sugarcoating any of these imperatives that we're going to go over in the next few months. Full disclosure, they're very challenging. They are very, very demanding. And His commands are not suggestions to the family. Like my, letter, my love letters to my kids, these aren't suggestions, this is the truth. This is how it is. So there are no options for children to disobey. And this is really important for us to understand is that God is writing this letter to us. There's no option to disobey his commands. And so, you know, when we drop off our kids at a play date, we instruct them, right, how to imitate us, hopefully, and what to say. So, you know, be sure you say hello, please, thank you, goodbye, make sure you do all this. We tell them what to do. Make sure you clean up after yourself, that you play well with others, that, that you share. Um, and, and then we give them all these other things that we would like them to imitate. Why? Because they are representative of us while we're away from them. And, and so we do everything we can to equip them and to do what they're supposed to do. But then once they're out of our sight, they're on their own. And then they represent us without 
our direct instructions or our direct influence. And then what they do, that's what they do. And here we are, where God has left us actually something even more influential and even more powerful. He's left us His Holy Word. He's left us His Holy Spirit. And there's nothing greater to be than to be a child of God. And all the blessings come with a great responsibility because the world is going to make judgments about God based on His children. Bummer. And so you see how important it is to walk in love for those who are in Christ. How are we walking? Look at verse 2. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so the whole focus of the love of God is on the cross. And when Paul writes for us to walk in love, it's in light of Christ's love for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so the love of God is expressed in the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us. And Jesus Christ was not passive about this and, and what he did to save our lives. He's not passive about it at all. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That Jesus willingly went to the cross to save us, to die in our place. Now, why is there this emphasis on the cross? For those unfamiliar with the cross, they think that the cross is just like this very, very unfortunate way for Jesus Christ to die, that these Persians were terrible and they created this very torturous way for capital punishment. And that's just the way it was done back then. So Jesus was one of the victims of that and poor Jesus. And, and yet he was a good man and, and he's great and he's good to follow. That's such a watered down message about walking in love and to be like Jesus. It is more than Jesus simply being good or kind or just the way that people should be. And so to them, the cross is meaningless it's just another form of execution. There's no meaning to it. And so they're looking at Jesus without the eyes of divinity, this divine plan of salvation. And that's what the Bible does for us. The Bible tells us a much different story than what the world does. And that if you read the Old Testament, you're going to see that sacrifices are mentioned a lot. And if you're not familiar with sacrifices, it's going to be very confusing to you. Like, oh, how archaic, how barbaric. Look at all these sacrifices, just killing animals. Well, it's all pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus gave his all to us, and we are to be imitators of God just as Christ gave his all. And when we walk in love, we keep in mind, how did Jesus do that? What did Christ do? 
that God's love is expressed to us in Jesus Christ who offers forgiveness to those who don't deserve it. That we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. And Jesus offered dead, sinful people life in him. Now, walking in love is commanded by God and we're able to do this because we have the Holy Scriptures. We have the Holy Spirit. And we need to ask God how we as the church are to walk in love. As Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, and if we want to know how to really love people and the community around us, we need to look at him. You know, Christianity is not simply a commitment to orthodoxy. You know, many of those in the evangelical church will just look at those who believe in orthodoxy and then just believe, okay, that's it. There needs to be a filling of the Holy Spirit, realizing that we are beloved children of God and that we represent the family of God to imitate Jesus in how he walked in love with people. How Jesus talked to people. He didn't talk at them. Christians can get really judgmental and they can get very condemning and that is not imitating God. That's not walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Who did Jesus tell to get their act together? Like, throughout the scriptures, did he do that? Women at the well? or and Did he ever say, like, hey, you know what? You need to get your act together before you come with me. Zacchaeus, get your act together. Matthew, you stop doing the tax thing before you come with me. Did he ever do that? He, he never does that. And Paul doesn't do this in Ephesus. He doesn't confront Demetrius or the other silversmiths in Acts chapter 19 before proclaiming the gospel. He just proclaims the gospel. And he tells them about Jesus Christ and his love for them. How there is forgiveness of their sins in Christ. And so our actions and our words, they need, to, they need to match. Our actions need to match our message. Otherwise, those around us aren't going to see the imitating of God. And we need to treat people the way Jesus would treat people. Imitate God, walk in love, and hopefully people will see the resemblance we have to God and become our brothers and sisters as, as God adopts them into the family, which brings us into verses 3 and 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Again, this is what those in Christ who imitate God as his beloved children who walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, do. We're not out there parading this for everybody in the world saying this is what you got to do. There's a whole list of whose message this is to be for. We are to have lives reflecting love, self-sacrifice, which means there are things that we don't self-indulge in, us being those in Christ. And this is all part of what it means to walk in love. Let's remember who Paul is addressing this to. It is not the culture out there. It is the church. It is the family. It is me writing a love letter to my daughters. Not some random people out there who don't even know me. 
It's really important to understand because, because if you take these verses out of context and you just read verses 3 and 4 without the background of chapters 1 through 4, you're going to start applying these verses to people whom this letter wasn't even addressed to. And you're going to come across condemning and judgmental and misunderstood. This is for those in Christ. It's for the church, those who are committed to God, not the culture, who doesn't even care about what this is saying. So, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, aren't to be part of the lives of those in Christ. But they're fully to be expected in the culture. Come on, give me a break. Of course. And how it dominated Ephesus, just as it dominates the Bay Area today. It shouldn't be a surprise, right? That's, that's not a surprise. That's what we expect. But those in Christ, there's a different expectation. Why? Because we're different. Ephesus was heavily influenced by the temple of Artemis, temple of Diana. She's the goddess of fertility. And so you can imagine the prevalent sexual immorality in a port city like Ephesus. Whatever you can think of, that was happening there. They even have... Graffiti that's marked for these things. You can go to Ephesus today and it'll show you, like it'll show you the point, the point you were to the brothel. And, and, and they had bathhouses. They had everything you can imagine. Impurity, covetousness, rampant in the city. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Of course, it goes along with everything. Now, we don't have a temple like that of Ephesus that dominates the Bay Area today, but it's painfully obvious that Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, they're widespread in our culture. You don't have to look far at all. But Paul doesn't condemn Ephesus and he doesn't condemn the culture. Paul is encouraging those in Christ and the church to live in this way. And so again, so important to understand all the indicatives that we find in chapters 1 through 3 to get this very solid foundation about who we are in Jesus Christ. And we must understand our identity in Christ before we get to any of the imperatives we find in chapters 4 through 6. That those imperatives we receive are, those, are for those in Christ, and it's because we are His beloved children. These aren't rules for us to expect out of those who are not God's children outside of Christ. These are for God's beloved children who imitate God to resemble those family traits of our Father and we walk in love. We can't let a godless culture influence who we are in Christ. We can't let the sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking become normal to us. And it has become normal to so many who confess that they're Christians. And it seems that for so many there is a greater imitation of the world than there is an imitation of God. So whose child are you? Because who do you resemble? Are you walking in love as Christ did? And as children of God, don't compromise who you are. You're, you are his beloved child, your identity is in Christ. And you'll notice that this is more than just practicing these things. It's even about how you think, how you talk, 
how you associate with these matters. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. When something is rotting, you don't just cut a piece of the rot off. You cut it all off. Otherwise, that rotting continues. It's the same thing for cancer. You don't just cut a piece of cancer off. It spreads. You cut it all off. And so when Paul talks about sexual immorality, it is every sexual sin outside the context of a covenant marriage that is lifelong heterosexual and monogamous. That anything sexual outside of that marriage covenant is not acceptable to holy God. And what the culture believes does not change what is biblical. And it's no wonder that the world believes differently than the church or those in Christ because that is what holy means. Holy means that you are not common. That it's, it's not common. The antonym to holiness is just common. It means that you're set apart, that we are different from the world, from the culture. And as beloved children of God, we walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us. We believe in the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, and we believe in the authority, the inerrancy of the word of God. We are different from the world, from the culture. Those in Christ are different from the culture 2,000 years ago, just as we are today. We are different. God didn't change. The Word of God is still the Word of God. Anything that sets itself against the purpose or purity of God falls within sexual immorality. It falls within impurity. And then covetous is, covetousness is written. Why covetousness? Because it was something those in Christ struggled with. You're in this very wealthy city. You want what everyone else has. Again, Paul is writing to those in Christ, in the church. Ephesus has some of the largest trading routes of the entire Roman Empire. The only city that's bigger and has more trade going through it is Rome itself. And so there is a lot of filthiness, there is a lot of crude joking, there's a lot of foolish talk. And we can see how all of those things have influenced the church back then, and it still influences the church today. And Paul tells the church, that sort of stuff, it's out of place for those in Christ. It's out of place. That those outside of Christ, you know, they don't know any better, better, and nor do they even care. But those in Christ, we are to imitate God. God doesn't do those things. That is not a family trait. You are his beloved child. We are to walk in love and we are to practice thanksgiving. Now, why thanksgiving? Because thanksgiving acknowledges the source of what is given, God. It acknowledges what we have received, but more importantly, where it came from. And if we know who we received it from, we will use what we have received accordingly. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, 
but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Those in Christ... Don't demand to have things their way. We are imitating God as his beloved children. We are walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We're not demanding people in the culture to live like children of God. We don't do that because they're not. Actually, we acknowledge that we're different from them. And we live according to God's word. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Those aren't to be practiced. They're not to be thought of or associated with amongst those in Christ. Rather, those in Christ think of, associate with sex with the right person at the right time, and we thank God for it. God created sex. It's a good thing. And it's not like he didn't want us to have sex. He wants everyone who has been called to celibacy, and that is a very small number, but everyone else, enjoy it. Do it. But in Ephesus, it's just a free-for-all. Do it with whoever you like, whenever you like, however you like, whatever. No rules. Temple of Artemis had every sexual encounter that you can possibly think of, just like we do today. And because it's a free-for-all like today, like it was in Ephesus, there was no thanksgiving. It's just to feed the flesh. It's just to feed that appetite. And so again, the thanksgiving, you can actually pause and thank God for that person. It's not just an object. That's your wife. That's your husband. And it was the right time, right person. Thank you. Now, please don't go around telling people outside of Christ what these imperatives are for those who are in Christ. This letter was written to those in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians chapter 1 through 4. Not them, us. God's purpose in saving you isn't so that you have a painless life with no suffering and everything turns out to be perfect. It's not so that all your problems go away to make you happy. The purpose of God's salvation is to make you holy, to make you blameless before him. That is the purpose of salvation. That we're not in God's family because it changes all of our circumstances for the better and birds start chirping on your shoulder and all this kind of stuff. It's not like we don't experience hurt or grief. We do, don't we? Very much so. Terrible things still happen to us. But God never promised to make us happy. He promised to make us holy, blameless. And once you are in Christ, the reality is Christ is with you. The Holy Spirit indwells in you, and you are holy. You are not common. You are not that culture out there and what they want you to be and what they think and how they talk and how they act and all those things. You are holy. You are blameless. And when people participate in common things, when they are in Christ, 
you're miserable. Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells in you. And if you aren't miserable, you really have to question if the third thing happened, that the Holy Spirit has sealed you. Because maybe you heard it, but it hasn't transformed you. So you have to really wonder, are you indeed a child of God then? You, you practice those things willfully and, and disobediently and it doesn't do anything within you? I don't know. I don't think so. Because you're not imitating God. You're not walking in love with thanksgiving. You can't possibly thank God for sins that you're doing. Thank God I'm stealing. Thank God I tell crude jokes. Thank God I talk like this. But the challenge we all have, whether we are in Christ or, or not, is that sin continues to live in us. And it's this constant, continuous battle to go to the easier road, to go to the wider road, to go to that wider, more convenient gate. And it's still something I still struggle with now. I've been a pastor for over 20 years. I'm not perfect whatsoever. My daughter's right there. You can ask her. I'm not. And that we constantly what, want what we can get right now rather than waiting for that right person at the right time. We always want to gratify. That's why pornography continues to exponentially grow. Because we want instant gratification. So we, we don't even want to wait for the right person. We're just waiting right time. Right time is what we want. Persons later. We're driven by what makes us temporarily happy over what makes us everlastingly holy. God is making us holy. And sometimes it's just this very, very difficult process because it involves our actions, our communications, our intentions, our thoughts, desires. And it requires our whole being. And something that gets Christians in trouble is when we get so preachy to the world and to the culture out there that we use verses like this found in places like Ephesians 5 to condemn them when it's not even for them. It's for you. It's for me. It's for the church. It's for those in Christ. There's no business for us going out there and telling people how to live and what to do. Tell them the gospel. Share them the love of Christ with them. You don't have to tell them the other stuff. It's not for them yet. And this is just a really high calling. And the only way to do it is in obedience to his word, reliance on the Holy Spirit, that we can no longer live as we want because we are God's beloved child and you're therefore different. And you want to live in a way that honors and pleases God because the Holy Spirit indwells in you. And if you don't desire that, you have to really question if the Holy Spirit has indwelled in you if, and if you are really indeed a child of God. Because this isn't just a bunch of rules for those in Christ. What this is, is an understanding of who we are in Christ. This is a deeper understanding of, of, of seeing our identity in Christ. And people need to understand who they are. We're more than our race, our sexuality, our intellect, our occupation. You're more than those things. You're in Christ. And for those in Christ, we're a new creation. Still imperfect, 
We're being sanctified, so we're still a sinner tempted by sin. So, so we don't always resemble God because we still fall. But we are a child of God, saved by Christ, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, by grace, through faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have some very challenging words. And I pray that your heart has come through the Apostle Paul's letter through my message. We're thankful for it. We're thankful that you tell us the truth as those who are your beloved children. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who have communion elements, let's take that out. Now, if you don't, just raise your hand and we'll, we'll get some over to you. And we'll first start out with the wafer symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. And this is for those in Christ, that you heard the truth, you believed in Him, you are dwelled in the Spirit. And so as you are reflecting, as taking inventory of your relationship with Christ, for those of you who are in Christ and you are in this habitual sin, I have to warn you that if you don't hear the Spirit convicting you anymore, sense that you're in a very, very dangerous place. But if you still sense that, thank God. Repent. Change. Let's take this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Next, we'll open the fruit of the vine, symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. This beautiful sacrament that he has provided to us over the years with the promise that he's returning and we do this until his return. So we've been doing this for over 2,000 years now and we will continue until the Lord Jesus returns. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. With thanksgiving, we know you're the source. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.